My guest today is Christopher Bramley. Christopher is someone who is passionate about collaboration, how work can be done in teams, and how organizations can adapt to new ways of learning. Uh, and in this episode, you will, I have learned a lot of new words and I, I assume that a few of, uh, a few of listeners will also, will also learn some new words. Uh, I'm uh, thinking about, uh, kinefin, which is part of the title of the episode, uh, homogogy, um, etc., different theories of complexity, etc. So, so it, it's a very interesting episode because Christopher has a lot of, uh, theoretical, but also practical knowledge about how organizations collaborate and also about, uh, uh agility. And, uh, let me know at the end of the, uh, after having listened to the episode, uh, completely, uh, or partially, uh, let me know, uh, if you would like to have more episodes talking about, uh, agility, talking about, uh, collaboration and, uh, uh talking about the new ways of doing, uh, of doing project management and the new ways of uh, managing companies. But, uh, right now, let's listen to the interview of Christopher Bramley. Welcome to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast to uh, Christopher Bramley. Uh, did I pronounce it well? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, Chris, uh, how are you, Chris? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm uh, do, doing well, uh, doing well. So, uh, Chris, uh, I, I know that you, you, are, uh, uh, you, you create a lot of content. Uh, you're uh, active in the Agile uh, community, uh, and you talk a lot uh, lately, you talk a lot about uncertainty, and for sure, we are in uncertain times. Uh, can you maybe start uh, for the audience by uh, sharing your uh, career story, and then we will talk about all those subjects? Sure. So, so currently, what I really um, focus on the most is um, a mixture of three main areas. So, I've obviously I work with agile. Um, and lean frameworks, you know, Kanban, Kaizen, all of these kind of things that, that help with the flow of information and processes and everything else in, inside um, uh, an organization, you know, to help with the outcomes that basically need to be focused on. So that's kind of one thing that I use as a supporting scaffolding, if you like, to my consultancy. The other two areas, I think, are probably more important. And so one of these is complexity. So I use a framework, uh, naturalistic science, actually, called Kinevin. Um, it's actually the 21st year of Kinevin. So there's a Kinevin 21 week going on. And I um, co-authored a 3D representation of complexity theory for a book that was out, which was kind of cool. It's just been released. So that was pretty cool. How do you spell Kinevin? C, uh, now I've got to remember how you spell it. C-Y-N-F-I-N. Okay. The Welsh word that means habitat, I believe. Ah, okay, okay, nice. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea behind Kinetin is that you are looking at a series of domains in, in given situations. So, you know, you have a clear domain, a complicated domain, a complex domain, um, and a chaotic domain, essentially. And you've got various other kind of transitional domains, uh, liminal domains, if you want to call them that. Um, you've got like an apparatical confused domain. You've got an open liminal domain where you transition. So things like, for example, Agile and Scrum and some Kanban's a bit different. It kind of fits everywhere. But those kind of things fit in a liminal domain between complexity and complication. So where you are emergently trying to 
discover new pathways to innovation and success and deal with uncertain situations and then being able to transition them through to something where expertise has meaning and you have causality cause and effect and you have order right and obviously you can do that with things so anytime you are prototyping and you are testing things within your company with multiple teams you are doing multiple experiments in complexity to find the best way forwards in complication so that then you can move to the clear domain to produce or manufacture whatever you're going to be doing so it's a pretty cool thing and you can use it for you know strategic planning you can use it for understanding decision making culture within companies making sense one of the things i particularly like about it is that you instead of relying on a pre-categorization which is very human you see something and you say my experience tells me it should be this yeah. right <laughs> that only works when you know what's going on right now with stuff with covid and how organizations are new viewing a new business landscape you can't apply past experience because it has no context it has no relevance so the way i put it on friday when i did my talk at atl was um if the landscape has changed a map is no longer relevant you need a compass right There's, you can't chart what you don't know or you can't have charted what you don't know so you need to instead douse a direction so it's a different way of managing where you're going if you like yeah so complexity theory is super cool Wow, I think that, that that's very interesting, and I, I will come back to, uh, to 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 what you said. But is, that was the second thing, right? Is it, what is the third? Yeah. The first. So, so the last one, the, the the last one, I think is probably the most important in a way. Um, I'm a specialist in learning, human learning, uh, understanding mm -hmm. how humans learn and engage, and that is the core of everything that humans do. I mean, you know, I when I I did my TEDx talk on collaboration, one of the core points was learning like we we are one of the few creatures if, if not the only creature that understands how to collaboratively learn in groups um yeah. you know and and basically ask enough questions that your learning is enhanced by learning in a group right collaboratively yeah. so i think learning is, is a, and learning is what humans do best we have conditioned the ability to learn out of ourselves very well with school with industry we are not taught in a good way Um, yeah. So I focus on those three things. I think that they're, they're all very interdependent, and I think they're all very, very important. True, true. They are uh, definitely, uh, definitely interdependent. And there is something that you you mentioned that is very uh, relevant uh, about today when you were talking about the second your second uh, area of focus uh, in Kinefin uh, is that uh, today because we are in a in uncharted ter territory a non-territory uh, a map is is not enough we need a compass but who, who or how sh shall i drag my compass with me how do i know that i'm <laughs> i'm using the compass the right way do you have do you do you have an, an opinion on that do you have a, an idea on that um i mean in in a way you know everyone kind of knows how to use a compass basically mm -hmm. um but using it well isn't always the same thing right <laughs> so there, there are ways you can use a compass in, in better and, and having an understanding you know as soon as you start adding understanding of the difference between things like true north and magnetic north which shouldn't make much of a difference but might depending on where you are all of these kind of things so so a lot of having a compass is understanding your context um having a compass is 
great if you're in a desert or something and you're like, I just need, I know that north is safety and I need to go north. You can just pick a direction. That's very good when you're in something like the chaotic domain, you know, or you're in limbo. You just don't know where to go or what to do. Everything's chaos. The only thing you can do is act. And when you act, what you have done is pick a direction. After you've picked that direction, you can then modify it, right? So that's where you start introducing pathways and moving into complexity and all these kind of other things start happening. Um, But if you're, I don't know, if you know you need to go north and you're next to a cliff, uh, you may not be able to go north until you've moved east or west and found a pathway up the cliff, you know. So understanding it's not just having a compass, but being aware of, of the context of your surroundings, I think, that's important. And that, I think, is something organisations are having a lot of difficulty with at the moment. I, I mean, most of the ones that, that I've seen who don't want to change and have said things like, um, we do not want to change, but mm-hmm. the world has changed, the universe has changed, and if you do not change to accommodate this, there are going to be problems. So if you just say, we need to just wait until things can go back to how they were yep that's unlikely to help you survive at the moment true 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 for organizations true for society at the moment and um, now uh, we can hear that you work necessarily with organizations uh, is there a specific type of organizations do you you, you work with no I, I work with all sorts of organizations so I've worked with um, software um houses i've worked with you know very large humanitarian aid international humanitarian aid companies you know i've worked all the way through devops and it 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 kind of there are some things that are true for most organizations i think some organizations will have a naturally more agile uh mindset i don't necessarily like using the word mindset because it's actually quite an inflexible phrase but having (laughs) agility embedded within you to be able to you know change and adapt so when i spoke about agility you know part of the agile community i'm also uh, i expand into a lot more a lot of other communities if you like uh, agile is only part of what i do when i gave this talk on uncertainty on friday one of the things that i was talking about was two things being required at the moment companies are insisting on using robustness and strength and familiarity in patterns that they are used to because it's worked before. But what gets you to where you are now isn't necessarily what's going to get you to where you need to go in the future and survive. So robustness only works up to a point. When you literally cannot imagine scenarios that are like high-impact events, low probability or medium probability, that they come out of nowhere and they knock you for six, being robust is not enough. If you think of steel, for example, steel will shatter it, it, it still can be quite brittle um, depending on carbon content and whatever so some of the best swords are made with steel that has the ability to flex so it has resilience built into it and that is a very important thing so two things that you need to survive any uncertain situation that is truly uncertain that is you you have no you, you couldn't understand it at all you have to have agility which is made of the ability to change to repurpose and to respond or um, adapt, accept and react, if you, if you want to put it that way. And you need to have resilience, which says to you, something will go wrong. Like fail safes are a very silly thing in a lot of ways. 
there's no such thing as a permanent failsafe. It will break one day. It will fail in some way, right? So yeah. accepting that uncertainty will happen is the first step towards resilience because then you can say, I'm going to keep my eyes open for weak signals in case failure is coming. And I may even avoid it if, if I see it, but I may not. And if I don't, then I need to be able to recover quickly, recover my equilibrium and poise, be agile mm-hmm. and recover. And then you have to have the ability to be able to hopefully exploit what has happened to your advantage. So that's where innovation and opportunity come into play. Yeah, yeah the, 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 that's great what you say. And, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to uh, put my... Uh, Put myself on behalf of an organization requesting your, uh, your 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 services. I assume that in order to uh, uh, digest and understand and apply what you say, it does take. Uh, I want to say a lot of time, meaning some months, or are your interventions pretty short term? I, I, I don't know. So <laughs> that's where the there's an interesting juxtaposition here. If you wish to transform and and actually change for the better, it, it's similar mm-hmm. to your diet. If you go on a diet, it lasts maybe as long as you do the diet and then it doesn't really last. You go back to where you were because diet for humans um, means a temporary state of eating something different. Diet for animals means what they eat, right? So if you want to effect permanent changes with your food, you have to make a lifestyle change. It's a long-term commitment. And it's the same with a company. If you truly want to change and not just adopt a buzzword, You can adopt a buzzword and it won't be a proper adoption, but you can do that super quickly, but it won't be to your benefit in the long run. If you truly want to transform and truly want to change, a transformation takes time and commitment. And most agile transformations fail because a company just doesn't commit enough or it doesn't, you know, it only wants to make one department agile, for example. So there's no point in having a, 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 department that runs at the speed of a Ferrari if it's stuck behind a truck, you know, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. only doing 30 miles an hour. So you, you need to kind of try and look at things holistically. And the difficulty comes when companies are used to looking at niche and modular approaches and recipes for success. The tricky thing is that there are very few recipes for success in life when there's uncertainty. Like if, if you know what you're doing, if you're going to bake a cake and you've got the ingredients, you can bake a cake. If you are in um, in Kinevin, the comp, uh, sorry, the, the complicated or the clear, which are ordered causal domains, right? You know what you're doing. You have manufacturing or you have processes that work and they always work, right? That is fine. But when you move outside of that, a recipe will not work because it will not be the correct context to do yeah. it in, if that makes sense. It, it it does make sense. Mostly when you talk about change of of lifestyle, it means that uh, a, a, an organ. If you work with a pretty pretty big or even a even a medium uh, organization, you it's difficult if only one department of the organization decides to be agile while all the others remain uh, keep working in the same uh, in the same way. It's difficult to apply. Mm-hmm. So it requires all the components to make the change. Uh, together, maybe maybe not at the same time, but at least they they have to go towards the same road uh, to together. If it if we want to work, if it wants it to 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 work, uh, and there has to be an idea for it. I think that the problem is it's also equally damaging or or frightening to go to a company and say you have to change everything, and and you know management will immediately 
quite understandably freak out. So I think the, the important thing is the agility of mindset needs to be set with the leadership so that they can lead and guide a company in an agile way of thinking. So there's no implementing, there's no doing agile, you become agile. Like it, it's an innate kind of process, right? But so you, you develop agility in your, your own context, but you need your leadership to understand this and then you can start with individual teams. But there has to be the understanding that this is going to be something that's driven from the top down but it will disseminate from the bottom up. So where one team sees more success, there has to be the ability for that to propagate to other teams to say, we want to also see success. And I'm not talking about pure software development agile here. This works in terms of communication between teams, collaboration, communication, coherency in terms of output and outcomes. All of this kind of stuff is really also agility, right? If it works in one team, the ability for that to spread to other teams is really important. If you only make one team agile um, and then you say, now we are agile, mm-hmm. um, that's not being agile, but that's what I've seen quite a few companies do. So it, it needs to be something that's understood. Agility, realistically, is cultural. And that's why learning is important because the ability to learn correctly and the ability to communicate, these are things that are built into the culture of a company. Mm-hmm. Um, and changing culture is frightening and it is not quick, right? So you do it a little bit at a time where it's good and produces positive results and it gradually, it's a very gradual paradigm shift if you if you can help a company do it well. But all of that aside, as a, a I don't really like the word consultant particularly, but as an advisor, a consultant, whatever, coach, however you want to put it, I do all of these things. What you're there to do is guide a company to finding their own context and mm-hmm. ways forward, not to try and force them to do something or tell them what to do or, or whatever. Um, and that's why a one, two, three step for success just won't work because, you know, they have to find their own steps for success and you're there to just give them that context and guidance. Yes. Yeah. And, and are, are organizations proactive in requesting your services or the services of someone who can help them with uh, agility or are they reactive? Um, that's interesting. They, at the moment, are not proactive with it very at all. Um, at the moment, in fact, a lot of companies have just thrown a lot of this out the window and said, we just need to survive. We don't want to spend extra money. E- even though this is the moment that they are having agility forced upon them by dint of needing to have remote working and everything else. So this is the best time for them to kind of at least look at how they can best adopt it. So how can we maybe do it better, which is fine. You know, there's no failure. There's only feedback. You get the feedback and then you make adjustments as you go forward. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you work because your your organization or at least your, your, your website is involve me training, do you work alone or are you uh, collaborating with uh, with other people? So that that's my organization and I tend to work through that or, or solo, however people prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will quite happily collaborate with other consultants to deliver, you know, um, kind of multiply led workshops, especially where we have complementary skills, for example. Um, I think that that's a very effective way to, you know, help learning get across. So. 
Okay, okay. So you provide uh, uh, trainings, workshops. Um, you are involved also in. Uh, um, are you involved also in? Well, I will call it like that: transformation project. Uh, yeah, I mean, as as an advisor, as somebody who can help management understand and drive it not as you know i i'm a facilitator that's i'm there to facilitate a company um you know in terms of understanding and all of the teams and everything else so i mean there, there's some there are some really good other things that i use with this including there's a, a really cool framework that's come out now called the remote agility framework um which is remoteaf.co um okay. is the website very cool it's based in australia initially and what they are doing this is in australia at, right that's what you say at, at the moment but it, it's okay. it's kind of spreading worldwide mm -hmm. it's quite new i'm one of ooh, i don't know maybe 20 guides currently we're early adopters who can see a lot of value in this um and the the idea behind it is it pulls a lot of frameworks together um with the ideas of communication and, and you know transparency between teams and all of this kind of stuff using Kinevin and Agile and a number of other bits and pieces, pieces of Scrum and whatever. Um, but it, it, it focuses on how to now work in a remote geographically distributed fashion, how to do that agilely, how to retain and increase humanity, how to retain sustainability both within the company and in terms of, you know, social and economic and environmental aspects. Um, it's a it's a very cool thing so that kind of thing i think can be very helpful for helping the company kind of find new ways forward as well i uh, true true and uh i have my, myself experienced those problems as a, a consultant being part of projects so i've mostly worked on projects that are uh, erp implementation so uh, management software implementations and uh, one of the maybe the last big project in which i was uh, we were uh trying to use scrum and agile uh principles uh but given that it's it's like a, the, the software was sap and it's a software that may take months or years to be implemented and most people have a waterfall experience so it was difficult to to apply so there were that's why i was asking you if you're involved in transformation project because i saw scrum and agile exactly as you said facilitators or coaches But I could see that, yes, we were applying part of what they say, but it was difficult to uh, get the message uh, upwards. So the teams could apply what they say, but otherwise it was difficult. Yeah. Well, I, th I, think, I think the problem is that um, how you use a tool is as important as having the tool in the first place. And that's something I think is very easy to forget. You know, it... it You shouldn't reconfigure your necessarily your entire organization to work with Scrum if you are already effective doing things and you can just enhance it using aspects of Scrum. You, you shouldn't have to say, we are only going to use pure Scrum, whether it's helpful or not. You know, it, it, being able to look at this and give this to the management in terms of, look, these are, these are tools that we can use. We, we have a toolbox, if you like, and we can pick the most appropriate tool to do this but we also have to use it in in the right way so for yeah. example waterfall is not always a bad thing and this is it gets a terrible you know name in the agile community 
for a number of good reasons, because that's how people have been taught through Taylorism that they should manage. Okay, waterfall is not always then a bad... Uh, no, no. So, so waterfall, you know, if, if I'm going to have surgery, um, I want a surgeon to have a waterfall approach. Um, you know, I want him to have a checklist of all the surgical implements he's going to use. And after the surgery, I want him to check them all off on a list to make sure nothing's been left inside me. Waterfall is not always bad. It, it, it where appropriate when you are using, it's not always good for management and for understanding people. And it gets applied to systems and systems thinking way too much, I think. But when you are looking at production or requirements around that, then it can be very good. You know, it, it's a very efficient way to get stuff done. So it's about picking the right context mm -hmm. for what needs to be done, picking the right tool for the context, essentially. Oh, that's a, that, that, that's a very good, very good point. You're not dogmatic about it. It's like really uh, con contextual. Um, also, then, then uh, you, you started with Agile um, how, how long ago? Because I, I would like to know how, how uh, I don't want to call it the industry, but how, how the agile community has progressed over the years so recently you did a, a, a talk at agile tour in london i know that there yeah. is also agile tour in montreal uh, and i don't know if if, it, if in montreal it's one of the biggest i don't know uh, but um, there are agile tools all over the world but uh, does that exist since 20 years 30 years or it's pretty recent So, I mean, Agile, realistically, Agile came around in 2001, give or take, with the manifesto. So that was written by, you know, 17 people who were very well embedded within the software industry who wanted to make it better. Now, um, I speak to one of them fairly regularly, Alistair Coburn, very nice guy. He says a number of things. I think he's, he's a bit frustrated that Agile, and, and it was going to happen, I guess, but Agile has become this buzzword, this cargo cult where, you know, it, it, people say, well, Agile is the process of managing teams to do with software delivery. Uh, um, yeah. And in, instead of the realization that software delivery was made Agile, there's a a difference between the two. So he says, for example, agile is an attitude, um, which I think is is very good. And another friend of mine, Liz Keogh, she's been doing this for a very long time as well. You know, she says that agile is not a mechanism for success. Agile is a mechanism for making failure transparent so you can respond appropriately, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of people mistake agility for speed. Speed is a byproduct of being agile. Um, in the same way that profit realistically should be a byproduct of excellence, not the main point of a company's existence kind of thing. Um, so I've, I've been looking at agile. I've been working in agile ways and thinking in agile ways for a very long time. I certainly haven't been doing it as long as Alistair. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but your, uh, what about your, your, your focus on how humans learn and engage, uh, Is that, is that the main reason why you, you make talks like uh, at TEDx or other places? The, the reason why you create content? Uh, your, your focus on that, is, is that something that you, you, a passion that you had since, since you were born or since you were very young? Or? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I, 
I've always had trouble with learning. Like I, I learn very quickly, but I have to learn in a specific way. And the way that I was taught at school didn't work. And I, I spent a very long time wondering why I couldn't learn properly, essentially. And then I, you find out later in life, you find out at, um, you know, at uh, industry, you know, here's teaching in, in um, three-day three courses to understand this and that and the other. I, I just found that the way that we've been taught to learn is based upon pedagogy, which is kind of something that was created in the Victorian era. Children should be seen, not heard, sit down in a class, at desks, face the front, shut up, don't play, and we will push knowledge into you. That is not how humans learn at all. So I've done a lot of work understanding learning and, and how I learn and why I don't learn like other people particularly. And I've realised that there are a number of different ways that it's not learning. Everyone learns actually in the same way in terms of neuroscience. You create neural connections but we all engage in a different fashion. And that will be dependent upon our culture, our first language, um, but also our individual neurology, our upbringing. There are a number of aspects that, that dictate how we're going to engage. Um, so cultural identity is a really important part of this because traditions impact that as well and so forth. So for me, I realised that, that really a teacher should be there to inspire you to learn because the only one who can learn is you you know i can lead you to the door of knowledge but you've got to walk through it yourself you can't i can't make you learn that so instead um i spent a lot of time creating models for something called homagogy which is the, the teaching of humans pedagogy means the teaching of children andragogy is the teaching of adults if you like which is what agile uses how do you spell it i'm sorry so <laughs> pedagogy is p-e-d-a-g-o-g-y The, the other word that you said, actually, uh, andragogy or homogogy? Uh, hom homogogy, okay, 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 like a human. No, it's, it's a homo as in man and gogy as in learning, essentially. Okay, homo, homogogy, okay, perfect, perfect, yeah. yeah. Okay, so okay. It, it's Greek, ancient Greek, but yeah. the, the idea behind it is it doesn't matter what, um, you know, cultural identity you are, it doesn't matter what age you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, we all learn the same way. Um, and actually being able to explore and play and understand and tell stories and seek knowledge out for ourselves because we are inspired and incentivized and interested and involved. And then we become immersed, you know, um, and then we become invested. And then we, we naturally instruct other people when we are passionate about things and we enjoy it. These are really important things for learning and they benefit every single company. One of the interesting things in terms of the flow of information and knowledge management within a company is the fact that informal or, or asynchronous discussions are far more effective at getting information across than formal ones. Like if you sit in a meeting and you get a bunch of bullet points, you don't even remember them. Your brain knows that bullet points are a reference list. I don't remember bullet points. If you show them to me, I'm like, maybe one or whatever. If you tell me a story and you involve me in it, I remember it very, very clearly. Oh, I get it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Those stories are really, really important. And that's a sense of social bonding. So you get this kind of social noting aspect where you realize the company is actually made of the people in a connected social network throughout it, not assets. I mean, the people are the most important assets the company has, but they're not just assets, they're people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so stories and kind of the human aspect are really important as well. 
Um, and so learning can really benefit a company because you've now got this trend for what people call becoming a learning organization, right? And the idea behind that is you are always evolving and learning. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, you can either treat failure as a lessening or a lesson. And a lessening doesn't gain you anything, but a lesson means you probably won't repeat that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so 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 good so good what you what you say and uh yeah becoming a learning organization i read it many <laughs> many many times uh also it, it makes me think uh even before we have we are the age in which we can work is at school at school we are indeed sitting down we are listening to the teacher the teacher is always right at least when i was a kid maybe now it has changed but the teacher is always right so so uh Uh, that, that's how that's how children learn like it in in the 1970s martin knowles was the guy who basically sat down and looked at all this stuff and he created this andragogy which is that you know how adults learn you get this a lot in industry now uh, you get this a lot with agile right we learn through play we have fun we tell stories we do this we do that but children are still told be quiet don't play don't do this so basically we're saying to children sit down, be quiet, this is how you learn. And they become an adult and we say, ha ha, that was a joke. Actually, you learn differently. Like that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it, True. school doesn't allow, school doesn't focus, the, the, there are a number of reasons for this. School and industry don't focus on the, learn, the outcomes for the learners, which is what they should do. When you have a teacher in a class, you can introduce them as a point of authority if you have a point of authority you have control and it's much easier to then measure control and metricize through this single point than to address the individual learning needs of every single student right mm -hmm. so that's very often what happens if you have that point of control and you can easily control these things you can much more easily metricize everything and if you can easily metricize everything you can make profit from it so it's unfortunately teaching it, it shouldn't even be called teaching it should be called learning but it's called teaching and that's how we think of it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay that's great uh, i think we have uh, we have covered a lot of uh, a, a lot of great subjects and uh, you have taught me a lot of new words i was asking you to tell me uh, how how they are spelled <laughs> uh and uh, today indeed it's so so important there is one thing uh we haven't uh I want to say I haven't covered is the fact that uh, there is uh, one certainty is, and we are in uncertainty and this is what we are living today. So with the pandemic, basically, uh, mm. I mean, uh, did, did, do you see a change in behavior uh, towards organization getting in touch with you or you getting in touch with organizations? What, what have you seen changing since uh, February, March uh, of this year? Yeah, there have been huge changes. And one of the things is when we are faced with uncertainty or doubt or whatever, we tend to default to patterns. Like we do this whenever we're uncertain about things. So, for example, um, a lot of organizations that were looking at becoming very agile and, and talking about it basically collapsed back into a command and control structure. You see managers who basically... Um, you know, were, were quite open with their staff. Um, and some of them have become very micromanaging through Zoom and introduced a lot of Zoom fatigue because they need to check up on, on people to see what they're doing kind of thing. And, and it's been just, it, it's now very interesting because we're at a point where it's been established that people can work 
from home, they're often more productive. And they actually, if you treat them like an adult, they act like an adult and they produce the required outcomes. They're not looked at in terms of output and the hours that they work, you know. So so there's, there's a, a kind of slight shift there. In terms of companies approaching me and talking to me, many of them are basically saying, we need your help desperately but we've made cuts and we're not going to pay for uh, all, all budgets have been cut. So it's kind of a vicious cycle of cuts where cuts just happen more and more and more and more help is needed. But the more cuts that happen, the less help you're going to get because you can't pay for it. Yeah. So it's definitely affected it. Yeah. This is, uh, and and well, how, how does those type of, I guess every company has a different situation or different reasons, but uh, how, how, how can it go you, you, for you yourself? Are you just, uh, I want to say, kind of refusing work or what can you do? <laughs> if, if, for, if for many companies, they are saying, ah, we can't, we can't afford, uh, uh, we can hardly afford to pay our employees or we can't afford your services, stuff like that. What it's, can we do as service not- providers? Well, this is the big difficulty at the moment. Um, I think that a number of my colleagues, even very high standing people in the community, you know, we are facing a a dearth of of work, essentially. You know, people are saying we need you, but we kind of don't want to commit to paying for you ad hoc or whatever. So it's, it's quite frustrating because most of us in the community have a passion for effecting this change and helping and it's a deeply sustainable kind of change that we like to help with and it's frustrating not being able to do that when you can so clearly see that it needs to be done um and and you know it there's just a lot less work for i think everyone in in coaching and consulting at the moment it, it's it's a bit more difficult um but you know there are still opportunities out there but it's just fewer and further between less companies are willing to look at new things new ways of working even though they literally need new ways of working right now <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> yes and they, they they know they need it uh, as well so okay it's a, it's a uh, yeah a bit of an uh, of an ironic and we we all hope that the the economy and the health of people will get uh, better as soon as possible mm-hmm. um so I've, yeah i said we have covered a lot uh so you have your three areas of focus, Agile and Lean Frameworks, the complexity models with kind of thing, uh, how humans learn and engage. Uh, I learned a lot of new words. Uh, so <laughs> it's, I think it's great for, uh, to really be a great episode for, uh, for the audience. Uh, and, uh, my, my last question, um, actually you can, you can answer two questions at the same time. So I, I ask always to my guest, what is, uh, what does having a consulting lifestyle mean? But you also mentioned uh, earlier that you, you, you. I won't say I don't want to say dislike, but you have maybe a discomfort with the word uh, consultant. Can you just say why? And <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so I think that consultant has come to be associated with, um, you know, large consultancy firms where you turn up and you do some work and you get paid a lot of money and then you go um, consulting. Doesn't you know? A, a lot of consultants actually do a mixture of things. They coach, and and again, coaching also is not used in the in the correct way. A coach shouldn't be somebody who comes in and tells you what to do. That's not what coaching is. A, co- a coach shouldn't be the best at what they do. That's a mentor, pretty much, if you want to look at it like that. A coach 
should be somebody who comes in and helps the people who are the best at what they do become even better at what they do. That's what a football coach does. They, they aren't the best player on the field, but they're the best at facilitating the best players to become even better at what they do, right? So they have a, a breadth of understanding in multiple arenas that supports these specialists at what they do. So a lot of people are actually doing that, not just consulting. You've got a number of other bits and pieces um, that are really, really important um, in, in terms of the consulting, where I would probably call it more advisory than anything else. And again, a lot of consultants say, you should do this. This is the step, the, the process to do it. But in actual fact, what you're there to do is, is guide, to say, let me ask you questions. And by the way, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to find out what's right for you or help you find out what's right for you. Yes. And I think that's why I don't, I don't like how consultants come to be viewed. So I tend not to use the word as much, but that's what the lifestyle means to me. It, it's something I'm very passionate about. It's something that is very interesting. It's very deep. It's very broad field. And for me being able to help and coach and teach and learn, like I learn every single time I run a workshop, every time I talk to someone, you know, never stop learning. Right. Um, that's what it means for me. Okay. Okay. Thank you. It was really a, a wonderful, wonderful interview. And where can, uh, can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn uh, at uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Christopher Bramley. Uh, training.com Obviously I've got um, my TEDx on collaboration, how to fall in love with collaboration. I'm pretty sure it was called. Yes. yes I've also a got a, a YouTube channel called The Gentle Iconoclast. You're more than welcome to have a look at that. And if anyone's interested in fantasy books and stuff, I'm also an author. So you can look at ChristopherBramley.com if you really want dragons and stuff. It's not quite as uh, work-oriented, but it's probably more exciting in some ways. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's amazing so i really had a multi-faceted guest <laughs> uh and uh, we will put all of that in the in the show notes so uh christopher it was really a great uh, a great conversation i'm sure the audience will uh, learn a lot uh from it and um hopefully again uh we all hope that the, the situation will get better but uh it was really really an enjoyable conversation uh and yes, uh, thanks thanks for coming on thank you very much cheers cheers bye, -bye.